you wonderful, wonderful geeky people, and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. This, ladies and gentlemen, is issue 100 of this ridiculous show where I rant at you about geeky stuff for an hour. That might not be selling it in the best possible way. I should rephrase that. Welcome to the 100th edition of Geeking with Destination Venus and another hour of amusing and entertaining and enthralling geeky news, views and reviews from Destination Venus, the comic shop at the heart of Harrogate. Yeah, that's that's better marketing, but it, it honestly, I find it hard to say that with a straight face. Look, it's the hundredth time we've done this, OK? I can't believe you're still listening, but I'm very, very glad that you are, because I really enjoy talking to you about this stuff. I really do. Those of you with long memories will perhaps recall The Geeks at the Gates, the show that this show evolved out of. The Geeks at the Gates was very much a communal affair, and all the much better for that, I think. But starting with lockdown, it just became impossible to schedule all of the geeks to be in the same place at the same time. And so there was just me. Now, I do keep threatening to get more geeks on board and to have it not just be my voice. And honestly, that would be my preference. So if you are sitting there thinking, oh, yes, I'm very nostalgic for the Geeks at the Gates days. Just hold on, because hopefully in the next few weeks, there will be more than just me. No trailers, no announcements yet, but I've got big ideas. I did actually want to get some of the old geeks back for episode 100 of this, but um, honestly, the real truth, I can't even blame scheduling for this. The real truth is quite simply that I hadn't realised that this would be the 100th episode until it was too late to ask anybody to come and join me. So there you go. Real professionalism at work. But still, there is lots to talk about today. And so let's get started with some geeky news. OK, so let's start with somebody thinking I'm right, shall we? Because that doesn't happen very often. I said last week, and do you know what? Go back and listen again, because I totally called this. And OK, this is still entirely speculation, but it's speculation now from somebody who actually gets things right. So, Ms. Marvel's going to die. I had a bit of a rant about that last week. Uh, I was cross mostly, actually. Not that they're killing the character, although I'm irritated by that. But by, A, the fact that Marvel announced this. As in, coming up in a comic you haven't bought yet, this will happen. I hate that. But also, just the cynicism of it. Because I said that what seemed to me to be quite likely was because Kamala Khan is going to be in The Marvels, which is a major motion picture release coming at the end of this year. It is unlikely that they will just kill the character. So so what are they going to do? Well, I also pointed out that in the comics universe, Ms. Marvel is an inhuman. I'm not going to explain the inhumans again. Uh, Google them if you don't know. It doesn't really matter. Not the greatest thing Jack Kirby ever created. That's all I'm saying. But in the comics, in the cinema universe, the MCU, where the films and the TV shows take place, it has been very strongly hinted that Kamala Khan is in fact a mutant, like the X-Men. Now, the X-Men are not in the cinematic universe yet, but come on, they're going to be. So what were the hints that Ms. Marvel might be a mutant? Well, very subtly, in the final episode of Ms. Marvel, there's obviously the usual background music playing, and just as Ms. Marvel does something, the music goes... Which, anybody of my age, or, or you know, even a few years younger than me, anybody over 40 is going to recognise as the music to the 90s version of the X-Men cartoon. So that's a very subtle hint that she's a mutant. I think also an equally subtle hint was the, the bit in the same episode where her friend tests her genetics and says, there is a weird mutation here. I thought that was perhaps a little bit too subtle, but nevertheless, it was a strong hint. In the, in the movies, she's a mutant. 
Fine. Brilliant. How are they going to do that in the comics? Because there has been some, I think, justifiable criticism that the comics are not doing a good job of working with the publicity and the increased fan base that the movies have brought to support comics. Now, I'm a comics guy. I, I want the comics to do well. And when new fans watch the movies or the TV shows and come to see if there's a comic, I want them to recognise what's going on in that comic. Now, obviously, I could be a purist and say, well, the TV and movie adaptations should stick much more closely to the comics. But I would lose that argument. The truth is, if you're a fan of Ms. Marvel, it is much more likely that you came to the character through the TV show than it is that you came to the character through the comic. It just is. Now, I have to be realistic. As a retailer, I have to be re realistic. And I accept that. So I want, for the good of the character, for the good of the comic, I want the, the, the new fans of Ms. Marvel, who are going to come through the TV show that's already happened and the movie that's coming, to recognise the character. So there's a mechanism now, which I don't like, but it's there, for bringing mutants back to life if they've died. So what do you do? You kill Kamala Khan in the comics, and then you resurrect her on Krakoa, which is where the mutants live in the Marvel Universe. Now, don't ask. Just don't ask. If you don't already know this stuff, don't ask. It's not interesting. It's annoying. It's overly complicated, and I wish Marvel wouldn't do it. But the point is they have done it. So there's this island called Krakoa where all the mutants live now. The island itself is kind of a mutant. And if a mutant dies, they can be, be literally regrown and reborn on Krakoa. I know, I know. But they've done it. So that's what they, I thought they were likely to do. And I said all this last week. Now, this week, friend of the shop, Destination Venus, although not friend of the show, because I don't think... Has he been on it? No, I don't think he has. I don't think he has. I must get him next year. Um, This year? Good Lord. At Thought Bubble. I must get him at Thought Bubble. Our friend, Rich Johnston, the, the the guy who is absolutely definitely not a journalist, he will tell you this himself at length if you let him, but who still has contacts everywhere in comics, who has definitely not been doing journalism for well over 25 years now in the comics sphere. Rich Johnston himself, the creator of Bleeding Cool, has speculated exactly the same thing. Now, the difference between me speculating it and him speculating it is actually quite important. When I speculate things, I am making guesses. OK, they're informed guesses. I know this industry. I know the way people work. I know the kinds of things that the editorial departments at various companies are likely to do because I know what they've done before. So, you know, if I'm making a guess, it's an informed guess, but it's still a guess. When Rich makes a guess, Rich isn't guessing. I don't think I've ever known Rich make a guess about a story. He doesn't have to. OK, everyone in comics knows Rich and everyone in comics knows that when you talk to Rich, you are never, ever off the record. But if Rich makes a guess, it's because somebody's unofficially told him something is my experience of Rich and his articles over decades now. And Rich basically speculated the same thing. So I think I'm right. And I think this is what's going to happen. And uh, I'm not mad about it. I'm just disappointed. I wish I wish they wouldn't. But anyway, um, you can go to Bleeding Cool and look for that's um, Where is that? Bleedingcool.com. Go to Bleeding Cool and look for the news item, Marvel's Classified Comic Revealed as a Ms. Marvel title. It does have a question mark after it because Rich Rich will go that far to pretend he's guessing. I really don't think he is. What's the, the classified thing about? Well, there is a new Marvel comic series starting in August. We know it's starting in August because it's on the order form for, for, for June, which is all well and good. But of course, if they want to keep the fact that it's a Ms. Marvel series secret, then they can't say Ms. Marvel issue one on the on the solicitation on the order form. So there is a comic that I can order that I will be ordering called Classified issue one. But you see, there's the thing because we have to order this stuff massively in advance. It's not returnable. 
So if I buy more than I can sell, I am stuck with them, as is every other retailer. So Marvel also know that whilst they are playing their cards close to their chest and avoiding making spoilers, if they don't tell people that there is a new Ms. Marvel story coming, a new Ms. Marvel series coming, and it's just labelled classified, maybe people won't take the chance. So Marvel want people to know that the comic they can't tell you is a Ms. Marvel comic is going to be a Ms. Marvel comic. How do they tell people that? They tell Rich. They tell Rich. Rich puts it on ble- Bleeding Cool. We read it. We know. I get irritated. That's pretty much how comics works these days. So there you go. I've put my speculation on the table now. Let's see if I am right. And since I'm irritated already with the despicable cynicism that is behind all of this, let's talk about something else that has irritated the living heck out of me in the world of comics. Last week, I talked at some length, and yeah, sorry about that, one or two people have been in touch via info at destinationvenus.co.uk to deliver feedback along the lines of, yeah, we get it already, but shut up. So, understood, I went on a bit. Although, also had feedback along the lines of, yeah, okay, but you know all that stuff you said you weren't going to tell us about because we wouldn't be interested because we wouldn't know about it? Why do you think we don't know about it? And I take that on board. So some more stuff about the less lauded areas of comics coming in future episodes. But last week I talked about the Eisner Awards. I was largely positive about the Eisners because I am very positive about the Eisners. I love them. They are a celebration of all things that are great about comics. Except, except for one nomination, which I will confess kind of slid past me slightly last week. I noticed the title. It's not a book I've read. It's not a category I voted in because none of them were books I knew well. But I I raised my eyebrows a little at the title of the book, but thought it was probably being ironic. Turns out it was not. I am talking about Francis Rothbard, The Tale of a Fastidious Feral by Thomas Woodruff, which has been nominated for the Eisner in the Best Graphic Album New category. Now, this is a comic. I'm going to insist on calling it a comic, mostly because I think it will annoy Thomas Woodruff, and I think he deserves to be annoyed from the information that has come to light since last week. It comes to light for me. Other people knew this stuff. This is how I found out about it, because they were complaining about it. Woodruff does not refer to this book as a comic. He refers to it as a comic opera. And I would roll my eyes a little bit at the sheer pretentiousness of that, were it not for the fact that this is comics. And I spent my 20s reading Sandman and being a goth. And therefore, yeah, I'm not really in a position to sneer at pretentiousness. Although that said, I do recognise it when I see it. And this is definitely it. Also, that really, really long title, Francis Rothbart, The Tale of a Fastidious Feral, is, yeah, again, it's leaning heavy on the pretension meter. Well, since the nominations came out last week, there has been a bit of a stir for a couple of reasons about that particular nomination. And there is now a petition to have the nomination rescinded. So why is that? Well, for a start, who is Thomas Woodruff? Well, he used to be the chair of the Bachelor of Fine Arts of Illustration and Cartooning at the School of Visual Arts. He was there for 20 years, uh, from 2001 to 2021. Now, he was appointed to that position, which has cartooning in its title, despite the fact that he had always expressed a particular and intense distaste for comics as a medium, uh, describing it as an inferior medium, that's a, that's a quote, and low art, also a quote. While he was in position at the uh, School of Visual Arts, he also developed a reputation for being verbally quite... Ah, sources that I'm looking at use the word abusive. I'm not going to say he was abusive. I'm going to say he was verbally robust 
and unforgiving and no what the heck i've seen descriptions of what he did i'm going to call it abuse he was he developed a reputation for being verbally abusive for yelling for insulting for being for verbally intimidating and otherwise acting inappropriately towards students that he was supervising who were working through the medium of cartooning which is in the title of his job and the department that he ran. I mean, I don't mind if there are fine arts professors who think cartooning is cheap. Okay, I don't agree with them. That's fine. I don't live in a world where I have to agree with everybody. But if it's your actual job, if you feel that about cartooning, don't take a job in a department that teaches cartooning. Okay, just don't. So there's that. And, and if you do, then you're entitled to your view, but suck it in. People have come to your department to learn to be cartoonists and to learn how to do that style of art. So don't be abusive at them and don't be dismissive of them when they do that. OK, you're at fault there, I would argue. Um, now, it is alleged, and I was not there, but it is alleged by people who were, that he developed an atmosphere at the SVA of um, fear and shame for people involved in cartooning. And there are people who feel that he has done things that have damaged not just the comics community, but the medium. And the people who hold that view are understandably somewhat miffed that he should have received an Eisner nomination. That would be like somebody who came from the theatre and spent their entire career not just saying that movies were rubbish, all movies were rubbish, that it was a junk medium, but also actually going on set and being verbally abusive towards people who were making films and then nominating that person for an Oscar. It's going to jar, is what I'm saying. Now, all of that said, to a degree, so what? The Eisners, just as the Oscars are, are supposed to be about quality, about the merit of the work. So if this guy who claims to hate comics and has been dismissive and abusive towards people who wanted to make comics, if this guy has actually produced a good comic, whether he calls it a graphic opera or whatever he calls it, um, fine. You know, if it's good, then I'm not going to like him, but if the work is good, then it deserves recognition. And, you know, it, it's a nom it's a nom nominate for an Eisner. It hasn't been given an Eisner. It can stand and fall on the merit of itself. If it wins, then presumably it's good enough. And in a perfect world, that would be the only consideration. Of course, it's not a perfect world. So, in fact, there is more to it than that. I'm, I'm not. Would I be happy if this comic won? No. No, I wouldn't. I'd be disappointed. Can I justify that rationally? No, I probably can't. I mean, if if it's good, then it's good. But then comes the question, is it good? So let's let's not just focus on the on the person. Let's focus also on the work itself. Now, it's from Fantagraphics, which is a pretty reputable publishing outfit. They've got a long history of producing very good, independent stuff. Does this work fall into that category, or have Fantagraphics dropped the ball? And, and here I largely have to reserve judgment, because as previously noted, I have not read this book so i can only go on reviews and the various snippets of this book that i've seen online and i'm prefixing everything i'm about to say about my opinion on this book with that so that you understand where i'm coming from i'm not coming from a place of deep knowledge here i'm coming from a place of instinct which is never going to be objective. 
And indeed, given that I did not actually look at anything to do with this book until I was aware of the controversy surrounding its creator, yes, any judgment I make on this book is going to be coloured by the fact that I'm irritated by the person responsible for creating it. That's not the book's fault. But, you know, I'm mentioning that too, so that you can take it into account. When I say, oh, I don't like it, I don't. Um, why don't I? Apart from the fact that I, I don't want it to succeed because I don't like the guy that made it. Well, OK. First up. It looks nice, but I don't see anything challenging or innovative about the art itself. I can't comment too closely on the story because I haven't read it. But art is a, a thing you can look at and to make a judgment on only having seen. It's art. That's kind of it's a visual thing. And yeah, it's competent. But I don't see flair. And I guess that's what I'm looking for when something is nominated for an Eisner. I'm looking for sparkle. And I'm not seeing it here. Now, I, I, I have to say I am very possibly missing something. But surely, surely there's a point to that. I mean, I can look just to pull an, an example out of thin air. I can look at a page of Bruno Redondo art, pretty much any page of Bruno Redondo art, and I can understand why, as an artist, he has been nominated for an Eisner. There is a cleanliness of line, but also a dynamism in every panel he draws that I am simply not qualified to articulate. I don't have the vocabulary for it. I suspect friend of the show and former geek at the gate hat with her master's degree in fine art could probably do a better job of this. And you know what? Might get hat back on to talk about this further. But I know I, I can't express it, but I know it when I see it. And I am not seeing it in this particular work. But comics, which is what this idiot has made, regardless of whether he likes the term or not. Comics aren't just a visual medium. They are a storytelling medium. They're a medium about narrative. And do you know what? Here, I'll give him some props, actually, because I do see that the art I've seen online is telling a story. It is not just a series of pictures. It is a series of pictures that tell a story. But he's not nominated in the best artist category. He's nominated in the best graphic album category. So we need to take the thing as a whole. It's not just about the art or about the storytelling. It's about the art and the storytelling and the story that is actually being told. So what is the story? Well, derivative, I think, is the word I would use. It's, it's, it's basically a riff on a sort of Tarzan, Jungle Book, Mowgli kind of vibe. Now, first of all, that's not original. Although, you know, I, I don't actually have issue with that. One of my favourite science fiction comics of recent months was the magnificent All Against All, which was pitched to me as Alien, but the xenomorph is Tarzan. Now, that's not an original pitch, and, and it's also an accurate pitch. But, obviously, there was more to the story than that. The story itself was innovative. It did something interesting with that trope. It took the idea of rationalism and science versus the wild and bestial and flipped it. And instead of having um, somebody from a civilised society becoming feral, it had somebody who was manufactured by a civilised society or a so-called civilised society who reacted to the way they were treated in a feral way. And it was great. This, not so much. This is in exactly the same vein as... Mowgli or Tarzan. This is a young child 
raised in the jungle. And I'm using heavy air quotes here for most of these words. It it lacks innovation. It's somebody who's seen Tarzan, read the Jungle Book, and thought, well, I'll do that. Not what unique vision can I bring to this idea? How can I take this trope and turn it into something new? No, just, well, I'll do that. It is, if you like, what Battlestar Galactica was to Star Wars. There's not necessarily any shame in that. Yet more of the same, if the same is what you want, is a fine and lovely thing. But is it Eisner-worthy? Would I have given an Oscar or an Emmy to Battlestar Galactica for its storytelling? No. Hello, Reggie from the future, just dropping in here to say, when I talk about Battlestar Galactica, I, of course, am not talking about the reboot. I am talking about the original 1970s, early 80s TV show that was entirely created to ride on the coattails of the success of Star Wars. Uh, it featured Dirk Benedict as Starbuck and Lorne Green as Commander Adama, Admiral Adama, Admiral Adama. Uh, and it was brilliant and cheesy and wonderful, and I enjoyed it very much as a young kid. And I think, actually, the pilot episode even got a cinematic release over here, so it counts as a movie. I absolutely loved it. It was great. But innovative and well-crafted, it was not. Anyway, I return you now to past me. So we'll see. I mean, it's now in the hands... Well, really, it's in the hands of the Eisner voters. I don't think that the Eisners themselves will pull the nomination. I, they've never really done it before. And on the very rare occasions when they have, it's been because there was some flaw in the nomination process. You know, it, rules, nomination rules had been broken, and I don't think they have here. So it's up to the people who vote for the Eisners. And I happen to be one of those people. Now, I did not vote in this category because I didn't think I knew enough about it. I have to trust that my fellow voters who do vote in this category make the right decision. Am I qualified to tell them what that decision should be? No, I'm not. I know what I feel. And, uh, well, an abundance of feeling over a lack of knowledge is the reason I didn't vote in the first place. So we'll see. We'll see. So in other geek news, the WGA strike continues in America, which means the writers still have their pens firmly on their desks and their keyboards firmly out of reach, except to type emails about how you should support the strike. Um, it's going to get worse before it gets better, I think. Um, the SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, uh, are also coming to the end of their contract with the studios. and. From what I understand, the SAG negotiators are also not happy with the offer that is currently on the table. If that is not resolved before the SAG contract comes to the end of its life, then they too will almost certainly go out on strike. If you follow anybody who's involved in any of this on Twitter you will see there is a very firm determination amongst the writers and the actors and indeed other professions within TV and filmmaking that what's being suggested by the studios simply will not do. People are being quite firm in their view that they are not prepared to have their hard work minimized and they are not prepared to have other people profit from their work if they are not going to be fairly remunerated. I think personally that that is a reasonable position to take. It is beginning to have consequences that can be felt in the world of viewers and fans Last week, I mentioned that Disney Plus was removing quite a lot of stuff from its library. And 
I expressed the view then that I couldn't quite see what the logic behind that was, because surely, I suggested, if you want to grow your subscriber base, the more you can offer them, the better that is, you know, the more attractive you make your service. If if my Disney Plus subscription literally gets me access to more stuff than I could possibly watch in a lifetime, and all of that stuff is stuff that I want to watch, why am I going to worry about how much it costs and whether I can afford another subscription? Because if I haven't got time to watch all the stuff I want to watch on Disney Plus, why should I care? And so surely having a massive library is a good thing. Of course, I'm stupid. And it didn't occur to me that this is actually a reaction to the um, WGA strike. The writers are saying, we want residuals. We want every time you make money off our work, we want a little slice of that cake. And because no one can quite work out how to do that with streaming. And the studios don't really want to share. I mean, it really does come back. This this isn't this this is a technical issue because I'm not sure how you judge how much the people who wrote the episode of Enterprise I watched last night should get because I watched that episode of Enterprise on Netflix. I do think they should get something. I've paid Netflix so that I could watch that episode of Enterprise. Netflix has therefore made money off that episode of Enterprise. I think the people who made it should see some of that. I don't quite see how you work that out. That fortunately, fortunately for me, that's not my job. I don't think it's beyond the capability of people working in good faith to figure something out. What I don't see is that the studios want to do that. The studios really, at the moment, don't seem to want to share. So I think that's one of the reasons why I am so firm in my support of the Writers Guild of America on this issue. I'm sure there's lots of other things I disagree with them about. But on this one, I think fair pay for a decent day's work. I, I think that's fundamental, surely. So, you know, we'll follow this and see how it goes. It doesn't look as though... It's getting resolved anytime soon, which means we can expect that an awful lot of the stuff we've been looking forward to from Marvel movies to Netflix TV shows uh, to all manner of other stuff. We're not going to get that when we thought we were going to get it. And some of it might not happen at all. And that's gutting. And um, I will leave you to decide where you want to lay the blame for that. I know where I'm putting it and I'll leave that. There and move on to this is not exactly news, but I, I have been banging on about Twitter off and on for a while now. So I think it probably is worth pointing out that Twitter has now got a new CEO, or at least one has been chosen. I don't think she's taken her place yet. Uh, Elon is still very much in that chair. I'm not going to go into detail about this. You can Google the information if you really want it. Um, what is significant to me is the fact that that means that Musk is going to do a couple of things. First of all, he's going to honour a promise that he made. He did say that he was going to appoint someone as CEO and he was going to step back from that position. Well, it looks like he's kept his word on that. So, you know, there's that. I think... It also shows that he perhaps has realized he needs to redirect some of his attention to other areas of his business. And that's important, I think, actually, because other areas of his business clearly need some pretty focused attention. The Tesla stock price has fallen a lot, largely due to the fact, I think, that nearly every Tesla in China has been recalled for safety reasons. That's not a good look, and it doesn't make people confident in the product that you're selling. There's also a big issue at SpaceX, which really, really needs addressing urgently. And I imagine there's quite a lot of pressure on him as the boss of SpaceX 
around this. NASA cannot be pleased at the continuing fuss and folderol that surround the um, the blowback. I use the pun advisedly surrounding the launch of the Super Heavy and Starship combination uh, a few weeks ago. Yes, it was the most powerful rocket that's ever been launched from Earth. And yes, that was a magnificent achievement. And yes, it does take SpaceX just that step closer to being able to deliver the things it's contracted with NASA to deliver with regard to the Artemis program. All of that is great and good and wonderful. And I applaud all of it, as I suspect does NASA. But they may not be allowed to launch from there ever again. Because Musk's carelessness, and I do lay this at his feet, Musk's carelessness caused them to launch without fairly basic safety protocols in place. Now, we've spoken about this before, so I won't go into detail about it. But that lack of um, exhaust dampening and stuff led to them blasting a massive hole in a federal nature reserve and dropping bits of that federal nature reserve onto other bits of that federal nature reserve that were six miles away. They also started a wildfire in a protected federal nature reserve. These things do not go down well, even in Texas. So the FAA is under a lot of pressure to look like it's doing something about it which means the FAA is going to put a lot of pressure on SpaceX and the FAA still has not provided SpaceX with a license to launch that stack again. And until they get that, everything surrounding the Super Heavy and Starship stack is on hold. And if that's on hold, then NASA can't look beyond Artemis 3. It's that simple. The Artemis program is stalled if Musk doesn't get this sorted out, or if somebody doesn't get this sorted out. It doesn't have to be Elon Musk. There are many people, I am sure, who would say it would be better if it wasn't Elon Musk. But SpaceX is not a democracy. SpaceX is a private company. He doesn't answer to shareholders on this one. He owns the thing. He's the boss. It's his toy to play with. Now, NASA is looking at alternatives now. Um, they're talking to Blue Origin, who, if you remember, did sue NASA a couple of years ago because NASA didn't adopt Blue Origin's proposed lander solution, arguing instead that what SpaceX was doing was clearly not only technologically more advanced, but actually further along in the development process and therefore redirecting funds to Blue Origin or anybody else to create a rival landing system just for the sake of having done it was a waste of resources. I seem to recall that I rather applauded that decision at the time. I'm beginning to think that I need to eat those words because putting all your eggs in the SpaceX basket has turned out to not have been the cleverest thing that NASA ever did. Now, in defense of NASA here, Nobody knew that Musk was going to go the way he has. Uh, I will be honest, I have never liked the man, but I didn't think he was going to become quite the caricature of himself that he has become over the last year or so. We'll keep our eye on uh, what is happening in the world of the muskrat, because, first of all, so much of that happens in the geek space, but also it has kind of important effects on other parts of the geek space, particularly geek space itself. OK, in better, more fun news, the sequel to Into the Spider-Verse, Across the Spider-Verse, is coming up in just a couple of weeks. June 2nd, I think, is the release date. And as a result, we're getting increasing publicity and clips and stuff hitting our social media feeds. And all I'm going to say about it is it all looks absolutely amazing. Ridiculous? Yes. Multiversal stories always are. But absolutely brilliant. I personally cannot 
wait. Beyond that, there's a bit of a dearth of movie news, really. I mean, we're seeing stuff for the Flash movie, a movie which, as I've said before on this show, I really had no interest in until I saw the, the trailer and Michael Keaton was in it, and now suddenly I'm going to go and see it, even though I have no interest in Ezra Miller whatsoever. I don't know what that says about me. Uh, I'm crazy for nostalgia, I guess. And just one other bit of movie news, which is TV news as well, I guess. Um, Max, what used to be HBO Max, but now clearly can't be bothered with initials, has dropped the ball again. In many ways, it was HBO Max that, or Max as it became, that signalled the start of the current conflict between writers and producers and other people who make stuff and the studios. They they did a thing in which they lumped various different creative job descriptions into one title. So writers, directors, producers, all were just lumped together as creators. Now, on the face of it, that's something that I do. I talk about comics creators as a shorthand when I mean writers and or artists or writer artists. And that's why I do it. It's because in comics, you're talking about writers and artists and creators is easier to say. But in comics, I would argue writers and artists or writer artists have a similar job. They are specifically storytelling and artist covers a numerous range of different functions. Do I mean somebody who creates the whole of the art? Do I mean an inker? Do I mean a penciler? Do I mean a colorist? What exactly do I mean when I say artist in relation to comics? So when I say comics creators, I'm covering everybody. Now, that might be what Max thought they were doing here. But the job of a writer is very different than the job of a director. And the job of a director is very different than the job of a producer, which is very different to the job of a writer. They are involved in different aspects of the creation of the thing in a way that is different to the way writers and artists collaborate on comics. So I think I think my differentiation there still stands. What they've done by doing that now is to essentially give the Writers Guild of America a bit of a stick to beat them with. And as a move, it has not gone down well, to the point that um, Max is already stepping back in the face of the backlash from writers and directors who want to continue to be credited as writers and directors. Apart from anything else, in the context of film and TV, creators could be taken to mean the people that created the show. I mean, there are that is a credit. You know, you may, you will see on screen if you bother to watch the credit, which I know nobody does anymore. But you will see created by so and so. And where does that credit go if the people who write each episode and who direct each episode or each movie are also credited as creators? That that doesn't work. I'm mentioning it only because, well, because it started me off on a train of thought. How should people be credited for the work they do in this industry? And it does have an effect on the negotiations between the various studios and the WGA. And so it affects the geeky stuff that we're all hoping will still get made. Now I think it's time we moved away from news because none of it's good and directed our focus to something that we have been neglecting here for a while now. Because it's time to talk about another wonderful woman of science. We're a little bit pushed for time this week because I do go on a bit. So we don't have a lot of time for the wonderful woman of science segment this week, but I was determined to squeeze one in. So I've gone with a wonderful woman of science for whom I have a huge amount of respect, but about whom I don't know that much because 
She has chosen not to share that much about her personal life, and frankly, that is entirely up to her. It's just, it makes it difficult to do a biography of her from online sources, because there aren't many. I am talking about Professor Jane Greaves, who is an astronomer at Cardiff University, perhaps best known for being behind the identification of phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus. Now, there was a lot of folderol about something that she suggested might have been the source of that phosphine, might being the operative word. Professor Greaves suggested that one of the ways we know that phosphine is introduced to the atmosphere on Earth is by living organisms. Now, she identified the phosphine. She made that observation that, well, we know where phosphine comes from on Earth. We don't know where it comes from on Venus, but on Earth, it comes from living things. And that, of course, led to the usual hysterical headlines that you get whenever you say the words life and in space in the same paragraph when you're an astronomer. Now, there was also some backlash to the reaction, which I guess is understandable, although disappointing, because surely most astronomers are aware of the fact that most newspapers don't understand astronomy all that well. Greaves herself didn't make any claims about where the phosphine might have come from. She simply observed that we know where it comes from on Earth. And, of course, as a, an eminent astronomer, this isn't the only thing she's done. We might come back to phosphine in a minute, but that isn't the only thing she's done. Uh, while she was working at the University of St Andrews, she led the team which discovered a protoplanet within the protoplanetary disk which orbits around the young star H.L. Tauri. Tauri? Tauri? Not quite sure. Uh, T-A-U-R-I means bull in probably Latin. In 2017, she was awarded the Fred Hoyle Medal and Prize uh, from the Institute of Physics, which is not a small thing, I have to say. Uh, that was awarded for her, and I'm quoting now, significant contribution to our understanding of planet formation and exoplanet habitability through her seminal imaging of debris disks around sun-like stars and solar system bodies using far-infrared telescopes. Direct quote that. You could almost hear it in my voice, couldn't you? Uh, in 2018, she announced preliminary results from studies into the presence of phosphorus in supernova remnants, uh, indicating that the level of phosphorus in the Crab Nebula is much lower than the uh, than in the Cassiopeia A area, leading to some spec speculation that a lack of phosphorus might be a limiting factor on the formation of alien life. And then, of course, two years later, on the September the fourteenth, twenty twenty, her team announced the discovery of phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, and let loose a whole panoply of other speculation about life in space. It should be said that it was Greaves' own team's analysis which led them to reduce their initial estimates of those phosphine levels, which has led to some astronomers questioning whether the phosphine was ever there. And that remains an open question, which, if you ask Professor Greaves about, she will say, yeah, fascinating, isn't it? And that's what I like about Professor Jane Greaves. She is a proper scientist. She's not in it for the fame. She's not in it for the notoriety. In fact, I rather think she would prefer not to have the notoriety, if I'm honest. Uh, you can, of course, follow her on Twitter, should you like. Uh, she can be found as Jane Greaves on there. She has a website which, were I still doing show notes, I would link you to, but you can Google her. It's not that hard. And honestly, she stands as a, a real beacon to me of academic excellence and scientific rigour. 
in that she's completely transparent. She finds a thing, she publishes the thing that she's found. But she doesn't get wedded to conclusions. When more data is received, if that data does not support her previous position, she reconsiders that position. That's what a scientist should do. None of that is why I selected her to be our wonderful woman of science today. Now, I selected her because she proves a point I've been trying to make for a while. The whole discovery of phosphine on Venus, or lack thereof, was not how I heard of Professor Jane Greaves. It wasn't. I heard of Professor Jane Greaves because of something else that she did. I think it's one of the most important things an educator, and that's what a professor is, can do. I heard first of Professor Jane Greaves because I listen every month to a podcast called Awesome Astronomy. I've recommended it on this show before. If you have an interest in astronomy and space science in general, you should probably listen to it. Google Awesome Astronomy or just search for Awesome Astronomy in the podcatcher of your choice. Because I listen to Awesome Astronomy, I have become a fan of Dr. Jen Millard, a young woman who studied at Cardiff University under Professor Jane Greaves. And Dr. Jen, as she is referred to by her colleagues on the Awesome Astronomy podcast, is one of the people who inspired me to do this segment. I heard a government-approved education guru telling people that girls shouldn't be made to do science because girls didn't like science. And I knew fine well that that was not true. It's true of some girls, of course it is. True of some boys. But it's not true in general. And I knew that. And I knew that because Dr. Jennifer Millard, wasn't a doctor then, uh, was proving herself to be a fine science communicator on the Awesome Astronomy podcast. And I knew because of things that Dr. Jen had said on that show, she was inspired to pursue her PhD by the fact that she could see through Professor Greaves that women can succeed in academic scientific careers. And of course, that's not the only reason she did it. She was already at Cardiff University studying astrophysics. But when you're making those career choices, when you're an, under, an undergraduate and you're thinking, do I stay on and do postgrad or do I go and get a job? Knowing that actually staying on and doing postgrad is something that you can succeed at, something that people like you have done before, something that's not completely out of left field, especially if you're from a family that doesn't have that background. That, that's a powerful example. And for me, Professor Greaves represents those educators, and they're not just women by any means, but she represents those educators who give their students that inspiration. And if she'd done nothing else, that would make her, for me, a wonderful woman of science. May there be many, many more like her. So talk about Professor Jane Greaves, perhaps when discussing the possibility of life in the outer reaches of the galaxy, or perhaps when considering whether there's phosphine on Venus. And with that, we will move rapidly on. We are running out of time. If you are listening to this, the moment that it drops on Harrogate Community Radio, then I am afraid you are missing the geeky movie quiz at the Everyman Cinema in Harrogate, because that is now, right now, as you're listening to this. If you're listening on the podcast feed, you've missed it already. Sorry. But do not worry, for if you have missed that quiz, the Geek Pub Quiz team will be back with many, many more including a brand new Star Wars themed quiz that will be held at Geek Retreat on Oxford Street in Harrogate. Our old friends at Geek Retreat 
will be hosting that, I think. And you see, now I've lost my bit of paper with it written on. Such professionalism. I think that's Sunday the 5th of June, but do check with Geek Retreat social media or indeed the Geek Pub Quizzes social media because you'll find the actual date and time along with the dates and times of many other geeky quiz opportunities in both of those places. And of course, if you check out the Geek Retreat social medias, you'll see all the other astonishing things that you can do if you get yourself down to Geek Retreat. They're not paying me for this. I just really like them. I know I keep saying that, but they're not, and I do. There's also, as ever, a huge amount of stuff going on over at The Secret Lair. Our friends down there have all manner of tabletop gaming going on, and we still do have more to come. In collaboration with The Secret Lair, watch this space for that. And we should also mention that the Comic-Con Yorkshire, or the Yorkshire Comic-Con, I'm not quite sure which way they're going with that, is happening on the 3rd and 4th of June. That is just over a week away, if you're listening to this when it drops. Uh, I don't have a huge amount of information. Uh, I have asked them for it, but I haven't actually received any. Uh, so I'm just taking it upon myself to plug them any way I can. And I can, because I've got a microphone in front of me. So it's at the Yorkshire Event Centre. That's on the Yorkshire Showground. Um, it's um, going to have a huge range of guests and things to see and do. Uh, we're look, you, there's going to be a TARDIS. Ecto-1 from Ghostbusters is going to be there. I, I think John Cleese is going to be there. I'm not sure why. Along with all kinds of other stuff. So... You might want to check that out. Their website is Comic Convention Yorkshire, all one word. That's Comic Convention Yorkshire.co.uk for all of the information about tickets and all of that. Um, as I say, I wish I could tell you more about it, but I don't know anything more than that. I, I have failed in my mission as a journalist. Fortunately, I'm not a journalist, so it's fine. And with that, it's time to start wrapping up. I would have liked to have squeezed some comics recommendations in. But I, I just haven't had time to read any. What I have been doing, though, in the wee small hours of the morning when I've been too tired to stay awake, is I've been watching Star Trek Enterprise for the very first time. Now, I avoided Enterprise when it was on originally. I can't remember even what channel it was on. I don't think it was the BBC back in the day. But I don't know. I think I heard the theme song. And it just put me off. And I know I'm not alone in that. And I know that's shallow, but there you are. But I was stuck for something to do and didn't have the, the headspace to do any actual work. So one night last week, I, yeah, I, as I say, it was knocking on towards midnight. It was late. I was tired. Uh, but I was just surfing through Netflix. And I'd, I'd been watching Voyager because I'd gone back and looked at the introduction of Seven of Nine after the magnificent performance of Jerry Ryan in Star Trek Picard. And that had made me think about Enterprise, because I hadn't really watched Voyager when it first came out. That made me think about Enterprise. So I gave it a go. And you know what? It's really good. I mean, it's, it's really good. It suffers a little from being a prequel. Because, you know, we know how this is going to go. We know how the relationship between the Vulcans and Starfleet is going to go and all of that. But still, I found I really rather enjoyed it. So if you, like me, had kind of avoided Enterprise because you had heard negative things about it, well, worry no more. It's on Netflix. With the writer's strike the way it is, it doesn't look as though we're going to get huge amounts of new stuff anytime soon. So maybe now is a good time to take a look at some of the older stuff that we missed first time round. I mean, while I'm at it, I will actually also recommend Voyager, which I've also been enjoying. Perhaps it's because this is the 100th episode that I've I've been sort of getting nostalgic about the past and stuff. And before we go, I do just want to take a second to thank all of you for listening. Some of you I know have listened to every single episode. And while I don't know where you find the patience, I'm grateful that you do. So thank you sincerely for listening i hope to do another hundred episodes i hope to keep improving and getting better i guess as long as you keep listening i'll keep talking about geeky stuff we'll see you next week for 101 be kind to yourself 
be kind to everybody else. Stay safe and stay geeky.